Well, it's my honor to introduce a video speaking about the influence and leadership of Tom Allen in the foundation of uh, this church, Christ Church at Grove Farm. Uh, he was the absolutely central and key leader to the initiation of what became a worshiping community and year by year grew to become Christ Church at Grove Farm. And this video will tell you some of that story. So watch with great interest. In the summer of 1995, a group of folks from Sewickley began asking God for guidance in starting a new church, one that was vibrant, welcoming, and unabashedly evangelical. Sally Danbar suggested that we need to get together and pray about it. So she said, can we use your house? So the first night there were about 30 people and we prayed about it. And then every time we had a meeting, which was two or three times a week, more and more people were coming. And Tom and Cam were very much a part of that gathering people together and getting them there to the meetings. So the longer we met, the more people that came, and Tom really emerged as the leader. We had nothing but a group of people who caught a vision for something new and different. And um, Tom really was uh, the spearhead of that. I have to, I have to say that that he, he was a visionary. As plans came together to form the new church, finding a location for services proved more difficult than anticipated. We were forced to get creative on several occasions. We were running the uh, ballroom at the Swickley Country Inn, and it was getting close to Christmas. And what was happening is that we, we assumed that we would have the uh, ballroom on Christmas Eve. Well, we discovered that there was no room at the inn. And, and Tom said, well, no problem. We'll just, we'll just rent the Majestic. I, well, you know, just the whole idea, like, where are we going trying to, that was, a, that was fantastic. Then it came Easter, we rented the soccer arena, and we set up in there for this big service, and we did have quite a few people. And um, we packed them in, and we realized then that we had something that was going to explode. At this point, it became obvious that having our own property and building would be essential to the continuation and growth of the new church. At the time, the Verlin Foundation was looking to sell off a piece of their property, which had been given to them by Mrs. Helen Grove. Well, I think, if, if I remember correctly, I think Tom was the first one that really came up with the idea of this property, and it was really because we had done some outreach things here at the barn, and we also had another person on our, uh, on our board that was on the board at Verlin. Tom was, I mean, in the early days, he said, how, much, how many acres? I mean, I can still see him sitting at his table. He said, how many acres are up there? Blah, blah, blah. What's the appraised value? Blah, blah, blah. He goes, if they don't want to buy we'll buy it. I'll buy it. He goes, well, there's no problem. We'll acquire the land. There just was, you know, bigness and vision about the dude. So John and Tom, I think, made a proposal to Verlin and had 
Jim Gordon give the proposal to Verlin. And Jim Gordon was beside himself because he couldn't believe that they accepted. With the property acquired, construction of the original building began. Ernie Pinyot, one of the church's founding members, became the construction supervisor, and Dave Doty headed up the architect committee. But it was Tom's leadership that finally allowed the church to open its doors in June of 1997. He led through hard work, a lot of perspiration, a lot of negotiation. Tom would do anything. I mean, he would step up, he would supervise. He did so much planning the building itself and working with different architects to get it and supervising every single detail. After less than 10 years at Grove Farm, the growth of the church required the addition of a larger sanctuary and a bigger area for children's and student ministries. It wasn't meant to be a 70 or 80 member church. It was meant to be a very big church, a seven day a week church. Tom's leadership and presence was essential to the formation and growth of Christ Church. We thank God for Tom's life and his faithfulness to the gospel. Tom Allen was such a big part of anything that we did. He was so, so important. He was a wonderful guy. He would adapt very easily to our third service today. Although he was raised uh, a cradle Episcopalian, but he was, uh, like I said, he was a innovator. He liked to do things just a little different. He made it happen. Without him, there would be no Christ Church. And every day when I walk in this church on Sunday, I think, thank you, Lord, for Tom Allen. We are dedicating today the entranceway, the walkway, and the entranceway right at the dead center and heart of Christ Church at Grove Farm to Tom Allen. And to help us in that celebration is his daughter, who's with us, Susan Allen von Van Vores. So come on up here, Susan, and let's say thank you to you as well. Let's have a prayer together. Lord, thank you for Tom and Cam, his wife and their family, for Susan being here, and for every memory so many of us have of those days when everything began and all was new and so small. But the vision was so great, and thank you for Tom's leadership in all that. Thank you for the memory. Thank you for the opportunity to dedicate the major entrance of our church to that memory. Continue to draw people that they may come here and come to you and find heaven to be their home. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I have a presentation of some flowers for you coming wherever. Here they come by our director of food service on Sunday morning. <laughs> Let's say thank you together, please.
Thank you all very much, and thank you, Susan. Thank you, Cece. Well, we're going to be talking about the influence of uh, what we present to the Lord and give to the Lord. And I am so grateful this morning for the gift of the ministry of our choir and musicians, how they have lifted this service from uh, mediocrity and into the presence of the Lord where we've all felt a sense of pride in what God has done in our country. You know, we're not patriotic just to be patriotic. America is great because America is good, and America is good because the Lord Jesus Christ has been working his way through all avenues of influence in this country from its first days. And we honor that even as we honor the flag. But I want to say thank you to our choir musicians, and you do so with me, for what they've done for us this morning, too. Thank you. Well, let's bow our heads and pray together. Well, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for Tom Allen. Thank you for our veterans. Thank you for the sacrifice and price paid along the way. Thank you for those who have given up their lives and those who, as yet still are recovering from what war has done to them. Thank you for us, Lord, for what you've done in us, in this nation of ours. And we trust, Lord, that as we go into the future, you would continue to bless us as a people and this nation as a whole. So right now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them, Lord, to your own. And take our hearts, Lord Jesus, and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, I am kicking off this series about our giving to God and giving God's way, that is, the way God would have us give. I was just reflecting on this thought, that when the Lord says, be holy as I am holy, part of God's holiness is wholeness, is his generosity. It's not that holiness is the absence of anything that's imperfect, it is that, but it's not sterility. Holiness is the wholeness of all God is. And God so loved the world that he gave. God so loved us that he created us. God so loved us that he sent his son to die on the cross for us. God is a giver. And he's given us all things to enjoy, says the scripture. And everything we have comes from him in the first place. So when we give, we're only giving back to him what he's already given to us. Whether it's talent, as with our musicians, whether it's genius like Tom Allen. Tom Allen was a genius. He was actually younger than me by about six months, I remember. 
And I couldn't believe everything he knew that I knew nothing about. And he had instant recall and could connect things, not dots in a line, but sporadic points on some kind of circumference of his mind and bring it all together. And that was true as we'd idealized the notion of a new church, which was actually in the first place called the New Church of Sewickley as it met in the country inn. Then along the way as we grew, we looked for another name and the, the congregation put in their ideas and by vote we kept shrinking down the ideas till we came to Christ Church at Grove Farm. By then we were moving on to this property. Grove Farm, named after Mrs. Grove, who was the original owner of this land, who prayed that this land might be used for the Lord. And here we are, an answer to that prayer. In fact, the day we dedicated the original building, now Wilson Hall, the week, I should say, I had called up Mrs. Grove... Helen Grove, and asked her to come to the service. She didn't belong to this congregation. And she left me a message that she wasn't well enough to come. That was on my phone. I picked up the news that she had died before I got that message. She died the week that we dedicated this property. Really an answer to her prayer. So it's been a spiritual exercise all the way through, and at the heart of it, step by step, was the intellectual and vision genius of Tom Allen. And lots of other people of genius proportions stepped in and helped lead the way for us to become the church we've become. And that's happened all the way along through its history and continues to this day. It's great to see those pictures of men and women, I think it was all men actually, who were veterans. No, there was at least one woman, I remember her, Maritza. Yes, I don't know if there are any more, but I do remember Maritza up there. And her mother's in our choir, actually. Anyway, to see all these chaps and the one chapess as youngsters. I mean, barely recognizable. Oh, what the years do to us. Anyway, we're here to talk about what it takes. The investment of our wealth, not just of money, but certainly of money, into the mission that God has given his people to accomplish in this world. And I'm completely unembarrassed to talk about money. Ministers are often sort of self-conscious about it, except when the right idea turns up. Like this particular pastor was asked, I just read about it this week, this pastor was asked by a lady if she would conduct a service for the burial of her dog. He said, ma'am, I'm sorry, I don't bury dogs. He said, if you go up to the Baptist church, they might do so. She said, well, just help me out with this, would you? 
Should I give the minister five or six hundred dollars for doing it? He said, oh lady, why didn't you tell me your dog was a Presbyterian? (laughs) Then we get interested. I mean, we'll talk about it maybe, even sort of take some action on it. But I have no shame or desire even to be uncandid about the need for you and for me to be real about what we do with our wealth. I didn't become a believer until I was 18. I was in London and I came from an irreligious background. And I went to church, began to go very regularly. The minister really became like a father figure to me in that church. And uh, he talked one day about tithing. I'd never heard the word before. I said, what's tithing? He said, tithing is giving 10%. It is 10% of everything you earn. Well, in those days, as an 18-year-old, any income of mine was a pittance, and giving 10% of it looked like a pittance. But then as I grew and uh, my wage began to grow, you know, a $10,000 wage, whoa, 1,000 bucks given to God's work. And then as it climbed up, you know, 100,000, give 10,000. And I don't think you have any idea what I get paid here, but I'm not going to tell you either. (laughs) But to keep giving as God gives to us, proportionately to tithe. You'll hear more about over the few days that uh, we will be spending with this between now and Thanksgiving. But I understood it from day one that you give that tithe to the Lord from what you have coming in as income. And consequently, my wife, who has a spirit of generosity, she's very happy to give anything away. And sometimes we have a fairly firm discussion about that because she's got a much more generous spirit than I have. That's been our lifestyle. And one thing I've discovered now in retirement... Even in retirement, it's been true throughout our lives, but it seems to be somehow getting amplified in retirement that we can't outgive God. The more we give, the more we get by way of return. And that's something of the spirit of what we're going to be looking at here, and really the promise of God based upon what He is like. That God who is holy is a generous God. He's a giver. He is the first giver. He gives us life. He gives us breath. Pastor Barry has a way of praying. He did it at the first service we had here this morning. Thanking God for every heartbeat, every breath. Well, that means something to me. I've had two open heart surgeries. Every heartbeat, thank you, Jesus. Every breath. I lie in my bed at night and I breathe big, deep breaths. I say, thank you, Lord. A gift from him. But to give that gift back to him and live my life for him, not in some kind of uh, holiday-making seclusion, which I know Key Largo and the chaplaincy that I'm doing down in Florida seems to sound like to you all. But I tell you, I am thrilled to be coming back as your now interim minister come January. 
and I'm already talking to the staff and leaders about how we're going to work together. This is our home too. We belong here. It's great to be called back here. Very good. Thank you. They didn't applaud at the nine o'clock service. I don't know what that indicates. But I am telling you the truth. Now, look with me if you'll turn to page six in your service sheet. These words from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It's chapter nine, 2 Corinthians chapter nine. And we're beginning at verse six. And he says, remember this. So Paul's actually reminding them of some principles that come right out of the Bible. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, while he's using an agricultural image, he's not talking just about grain. Clearly, anybody in any culture will know that if you sow a few seeds, you get very little return. If you sow bushels of seed, you get a multiplied return on your investment. And that's an illustration of what God is saying, that concerning everything I've given you, by way of intellect, health, wealth, position in life, influence, what you do with yourself, the time you have, the gifts you have, what you do with those in investing in his kingdom, in what he wants to get done, is a multiplication process. It's not a loss. It's a gain. Do you get that? When we give, we tend to think, it's gone. It's on its way back already as a multiplied gift to us. So the genius investment of Tom Allen... He's gone home with his wife, Cam to glory. But the genius is blessing so many people. The folks who've come through these doors, been married here, baptized here, buried from here, come to Christ here, had their families changed, their lives changed. And so it goes on. And you are all a part of that with your investment that you make as you give to the work of God here at Christ Church. You sow generously. You reap generously. And if you're missing something in your life, if there's something that seems hollow or empty or lacking, take a look at how you're spending your time, your energy, and your money. Take a look at your checkbook. It'll describe your life to you. It'll tell you where your priorities are. There is nothing like sowing seed into God's harvest field. Billy Graham this week had his 95th birthday. When he was a young, strident preacher, I was an 18-year-old going to hear him in London, and whoever was investing in him in those days in America invested in my conversion. The reason I'm here is because he came as a missionary and the reason he was able to come as a missionary is because people invested in his ministry and the reason my wife and I sat and watched him down in Florida Thursday night on television 
for the half-hour program and then a discussion of that program afterward. And there was the man, now 95, still talking in a weakened state about Jesus and what the cross has accomplished because God so loved the world that he gave his son to be our savior. God's investment. And then those who invested in Billy Graham and are still, that was not cheap. He'll be on the TV, one of the stations in Pittsburgh tonight. My wife checked it out. Go find the station and see the program. It's his hope for America. It's in effect maybe his last call to America from the screen of a TV. And what's fantastic about it is the people who are like the thread of the story as he tells the story of the gospel. An African-American rap artist. An attractive young lady, an American white girl who's pregnant. Part of the storyline, part of the wealth of an investment of others in that ministry. Nothing is accomplished without sacrificial living, sacrificial giving, sacrificial investment. There's a price that's been paid for Christ Church to be here. Not just money, time, energy, countless hours. And the same with every other congregation across the face of the world. And it begins with the sacrifice of God on our behalf in his son Jesus. And that's what unfolds as this text explains. Look at verse 7. Each man or woman should give what he or she has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Gladly God gave. God is not some miserly giver eking out goodness. This world is a spectacular evidence of that. And the way God has blessed our lives and the ministry of the gospel around the world through all the years, God joyfully looks for, anticipates the fruit of his investment in this world and the fruit of his investment through people just like us. How is it going to be that we can be joyful givers? Somebody pointed out to me that only by God's grace are we going to change our mindset on that. Instead of being miserly givers, to be joyful, generous givers. How does that happen? By this same spirit of this God who has given so much, working in us to produce that. How does that happen? Well, look at how the text unfolds. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you. God is no one's debtor. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound. And he doesn't just say with every wealthy uh, bank account but every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endure, endures forever. You can't give what you don't have. 
And when I earned so little and I gave what, even now as I look back on it, I didn't think much of it even then, a mere pittance in my younger days with a small income. There's an absolutely true account of a little girl in Philadelphia back in another era who wanted to go to Sunday school. She walked to the Sunday school from where she lived in the city of Philadelphia. And when she went to the Sunday school class, they told her they had no room for her. Well, she went out and was sort of weeping along the street, turned away from church, when the pastor walked by coming in the other direction and said, why are you crying, little girl? She said, well, I went to Sunday school and they didn't have any room for me. Well, he knew what the story was. She was just a little poor waif. And he walked her into the Sunday school and sat her down and she had a place. Three years later, that little girl died. And the family called this kind minister to tell him and to have him conduct the funeral service. And when they went to lift her from her bed where she died, under that little girl's pillow was a purse. And in that purse was 59 cents and a little note that this was the money. 59 cents. She'd saved up over three years, put away in this little purse. 59 cents by which she wanted that money to help build a bigger Sunday school so that more children could be there. And that preacher took that information and preached it. Well, that made the newspapers. And within five years, that little girl's gift had increased to $250,000 in those days. And if you want to see the fruit of those 59 cents... Just go to the Temple Baptist Church in Philadelphia and Temple University built by that church in Philadelphia and the Good Samaritan Hospital in Philadelphia and a Sunday school building now that houses hundreds of children all from that little girl's 59 cents. And if you go into the church in one of the rooms there is a portrait of that little girl because it was all built on her giving her little bit. Never ever think that because you are not wealthy, your little bit doesn't count. Who knows what my very modest giving at age 18 accomplished. But it set the stage for the rest of my life. And God has always blessed in his giving that the work has abounded in my family, in our lives, in our own spirits. So if you look at verse 10, he further go, he goes back to this image. Now he who supplies the seed to the sower, who's that? The Father in heaven. And bread for food, who's that? The Father in heaven. Will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Again, the repercussions are extraordinary. The harvest of your righteousness. The giving as we ought, the giving as God wants to, is an expression of who we are. Where our priorities are, where our heartbeat is. Has God captured your heart? Is your, your personhood, who you are, 
the temple of his Holy Spirit? Has he taken up residence in you? Have you opened, thrown open the doors of your life and asked the Lord Jesus to come in and take over? Well, with that, the heart change, the vision change, not just for yourself, but the lives you touch, the people you meet, the circumstances that unfold are a blessing. They're part of the plan. It's not that we're giving occasionally and we're giving modestly, but that God, as we give as we ought, is an expression of what he's given to us, makes it all abound. He is no one's debtor, and you can't outgive him. Is that your experience in life? The borders of my life, my wife's life, my family's life continue to expand. Retirement, no way, Jose. And I'm not talking about coming back here. I'm not retired in Florida. I'm busy in Florida. Men and women have come to Christ in Florida. Their lives have been changed, and Kathy and I are now dealing with people who are sorry to see us leaving because we're coming back here. And it's great to see people we don't even know coming up and telling us. I don't know where they're coming from, but clearly the repercussions of that influence is peeling out across the community there. It's a very wealthy community. But they need Jesus every bit as much as the poorest person you know. They live in a gilded ghetto, as a wealthy friend of mine used to call it in Pittsburgh. To come and meet Jesus, what a gift. Well, flying back up here, just to show you the fruit of little old Christchurch at Grove Farm. I get on the plane, Kathy is still down in Pittsburgh, called me, we've been chatting over the phone and praying over the phone. I get on the plane, and the flight attendant says, oh, Pastor John, big smile at the entranceway. And I looked at her and smiled, I said, oh, you, she may be here, Susan, if you are, come by and see me. You've become a part of my sermon, I didn't tell her she would, but I was reflecting on it. Pastor John. She, uh, she she's actually a flight attendant trainer. She told the flight attendants to take care of me. And I'm just back in the cattle part of the, the plane. I'm not up there with the big boys. Did they look after me? This, this young woman, Susan, young in comparison to me in any case, said, my life was changed by Christchurch. She said, I was divorced and I came to your fresh start, divorce recovery and the Lord met me and began to put my life together and then she became a volunteer with Fresh Start, which was run by volunteers who had been through the same painful divorce scene and her little girl from those days is now a student at the University of Pittsburgh. And this is what thrilled my soul. I was happy about everything else. She said of her daughter, she makes her way from Pittsburgh 
out to Christchurch every week to worship here because she loves the ministry of Pastor Jamie. And I said, whoa. My spirit leapt within me. Who does that? Young student from Pittsburgh making her way out here because of the ministry of Christ Church? Where did that begin? Began with a divorce and a divorce recovery and volunteers who gave their time to help care for people just like themselves and they had been as they'd gone through divorce. What a ministry. Now it's spilling over to a generation of students who are the children of those recovering from divorce. How bountiful is God's graciousness as that goodness multiplies and grows outward. And it is one person at a time. It's not a herd instinct. Just like you're one person, one individual, making up your one mind. Well, may God grant you the grace to be a cheerful giver like he is. My prayer for you and my request to you is that you would go home and even even now as you close out our worship service here, pray about where your priorities are. What are you doing with your substance? What are you doing with your position? What are you doing with your influence? I remember going to a man when I was a, I was a young chap, right up, fresh off the boat more or less, here in the USA, had a really big position down in Sir Wickley. Seemed like that to me. And one of the men in my church down there was the, uh, the financial officer, chief financial officer of one of our big corporations. So I asked to have lunch with him. He said, oh, fine. And we met down at the Duquesne Club. Do you know what I wanted from him? I'll tell you. I asked him man to man, just the two of us, if he would put his backing as the financial officer of this corporation and the position he held in this city and in our community in Sir Wickley, if he would put his name behind me, ally himself to me, back me, be there for me, encourage me, be that... I was a young guy. The old guys used to come out of church and say, when you've been around as long as I have and seen what I've seen, you'll be preaching a different story. Wrong. Same story. Same Jesus. Amen. But I wanted that man to back me and give me credibility. And do you know what he said? No. He wasn't willing to ally his name and his position to the spiritual leader of my church, the one I went to. What a shame. Are you willing to put your name to him? Are you willing to put your identity, your ego, your prominence? I love it when the athletes give credit to Jesus. I had dinner with Bubba Watson this winter. I loved it with that miracle shot on the 18th hole coming out of the weeds, the woods, to win. It startled everybody. And he gave Jesus the honor. When I had dinner with him, even the guy who carries his bags loves Jesus. His health trainer loves Jesus. They're a team. And they've put their name on the line for Jesus. Have you?
Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the worship we've enjoyed. Thank you for the nation that's our privilege to be a part of. Thank you for the music. Oh, Lord, please, God, bless America. Bless it through us. Bless it through our vision, our compassion, our sacrifice, our generosity, our surrender to you. So take now these lives of ours. Do something spectacular. Give us a vision for ourselves that's your vision for us. And we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.